Bottom line, still a better love story than Twilight. <laughs> but uh, that's not that's not saying you wouldn't watch Twilight. Wait, what? Yeah, I, mean, <laughs> I think that's exactly what he's saying, Joe. Okay. Dodge this. I am the father. I'm here on a mission of mercy. There's only one God, man, and I'm pretty sure he doesn't dress like that. Let's put a smile on that face. I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! Open the pod bay doors, huh? I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. Welcome to the real world. This is episode 111 of the Movie Bite Podcast. We're going to talk about some movies, movie reviews, movie news, trailers, and more today. We're recording on Tuesday, November the 4th. This is Election Day, 2014. I am TJ, your host, and joining me today are two very special people investigating a murder mystery or two. It is Joe Darnell and Mikey Fizzle. How are you guys? How are you, Joe? I'm doing great, sir, but I'm just going to tell you right up front that I I loved her dearly. Um, She was my favorite wife. Uh, and I have no other comments. Okay. <laughs> and Fizz, how are you doing? Actually, I'm less interested in reviewing this movie, and I really want to know how many live uh, election updates we're going to have during this podcast. I, I intend mean, to have none. <laughs> I, I, I did my I wanna, duty, I went and I voted, and I don't intend to think about it anymore until tomorrow. But people want to know, TJ. People want the latest. They want we, we can announce the first election results on this podcast that people will listen to way after the event. But we can say we did it first, <laughs> right? Uh, absolutely. Let's 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 do that. I'm sure that's what people are tuning in for. Uh, yeah. I yeah. I'm not even. I don't even want to go there. <laughs> that's TJ's other podcast. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I wish. I mean, I no, no. I don't even wish I had an, a, a political show because it would be stupid. I wouldn't know what to do with it and. I just it'd just be me ranting all the time because nobody in government does anything that I want them to do ever. So, okay. I want I want to offer this, but I think that having a podcast that isn't specifically for other people can still be a healthy thing because I don't like writing journals, but I think it's a great way to just get your thoughts out there and vent to a certain degree. And so having a podcast that you just sit down and say all the things that you want to say and just tuck it away. No one else needs to hear it. But it's like your video. You know, it's like your it's like your podcast journal. So, so you know, are you saying you have a podcast that nobody else listens to and you don't put out there? But like you, uh, you vent. Is that what you're saying? I'm saying if someone did that, it would be healthy, <laughs> or it could be healthy. Joe, I see you discovered the issue in the show outline that I didn't take the time to correct. I don't know how that happened. That's okay. You're, 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 Thank you, sir. You're, um, that's what I'm here for. Fixing the outline, making it pretty for just the three of us to see. That's right. Your, your uh, OCD has taken over the show outline. Uh, it bothered me for about two seconds, and I, I had way too much to do to prep for the show. So, hey, Fizz, it's been a long time since you've been on the show, it seems like. Well, it's just because it's been a long time since you guys put out stuff regularly, not calling what? people out. What are you but, talking uh, about? We've, we've put out uh, shows lately. What are you talking about? And I feel like you took a month <laughs> off. I well, that's because I did. I was very sick. Well, I went on vacation, and then I was very sick. We don't need to rehash this. We've been there. 
No, well, that's what I'm saying. I, I feel like I would have probably been back on. Um, you know, we would have we would have found a way to work together, but there was there was a little bit of break, a much deserved break. I mean, because it's hard putting out a podcast every week. Well, I mean, not everybody has 111 episodes under their belt, Fizz. I'm exactly. Not, <clears throat> I'm just I'm not naming any names. I'm just saying. Well, I mean, like I said, if you want to take in all to account all the podcasts that I do, then no, 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 maybe no, that's not quite no, as impressive. No, but no, no, we're not really no, going there. No, no, we're not. Okay, girls, let's get on the, the outlet here. <laughs> so, Fizz, um, I, it occurred to me as I was putting together the show outline that we talked about a lot of Age of Ultron and, and uh, Marvel stuff uh, last week. And uh, But you, you've talked with us about Marvel stuff before, and you're a fan, and I wanted to get your take on what's been going on. Joe and I kind of had our say, except for this leaked clip, which is pretty cool. But I, And I know you probably haven't watched any of these clips or anything, but you've probably been keeping what? up with the news. Well, this is, this is what Fizz does, though. Well, I, you know, so I've said before that I tend to only watch as many trailers for a movie as it takes for me to determine whether I'm going to go see it. In this case, uh, I knew I was going to see two things with the uh, the Age of Ultron stuff, and that is going to any movies between now and May. I'm going to see the trailer that they put out there first. Oh, yeah, that's true. And I'm going, and I'm going, you know, unless I close my eyes and, you know, cover my ears and go na 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 during the trailers, which I actually know some people who do, and I do not fault them for that. Uh, I'm going to see the, you know, the extended clip that we saw uh, with, with the one scene where then, you know, Ultron comes in and then we get the, the trailer that we're kind of used to seeing now. Right. So I knew, I knew I was going to get those two. So I was like, well, might as well do it now. Might as well enjoy it because I know I'm going to love it. And I, but I know I'm going to see age of Ultron anyway. Uh, I thought they were great clips. I'm very excited. It's one of those things. Is it may already? I think actually, I think yeah. you might've written that in one of your uh, articles. Uh, you yes. Know. If I'm excited about something, usually one of the posts about it will be something like, is it, you know, such and such a time yet? Yeah. <laughs> Are so, we there yet? Yeah. So I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm really excited, but I, I did see that you posted like that, you know, the next clip has been leaked. I, I just am, I'm going to try to avoid it as much as I can. Like I said, there's, there's things that I'm not going to be able to avoid with them and th- with movies this big, it's just, it's, it's inevitable. Yeah. That's but why I don't I, even try. Yeah. So I, I don't, I don't want to go out of my way. It's kind of like it was for Captain America. Captain America was so huge that they, you know, like the first 10 minutes, the first 15 minutes, you know, an extended scene from the, you know, whatever. Yeah. And I know that uh, looking back, look at, they didn't really give us any of the vital plot details, but I wanted to go in fresh. I wanted to, I wanted every fight scene. I wanted every piece of action. I wanted every joke or quick wit or yeah, yeah. whatever. So, I wanted it all to be new, as much of it to be new as possible. So all that said, all that said, all that said you, you've said, you've seen some stuff and I'm sure that you, you know about the announcement where they re- announced the roster for uh phase three, right? Uh, yeah, and I, I, so I've seen. I mean, because you know, you you make a li- well a living. You you make zero money actually podcasting about movies. <laughs> it's true, we do <laughs> like, like we like we do. We hope um, to turn that around one day, but not so far. Yeah, but you know, so I, obviously I, I'm aware of what's coming out, and I want to know what's coming out. But that doesn't necessarily mean I need to know the intricate details of, uh, like you know, like seeing lots of scenes from it. But I love to know that the the Civil War storyline is going to be adapted for Captain America. I yeah. think that's great. I think that's a great, you know, I, I was actually hoping that was where that was going to go, but I didn't know if they could try to handle a story like that in just Captain America. But you see they're bringing, you know, Robert Downey Jr. on, so you're getting a fan favorite coming in and not having to give him a whole other Iron Man movie. I think it's a it's a great, great way to do things. Um, huh. I, I mean, we have like 21, we put like 21 superhero movies coming out, and even though they're all probably not going to be amazing, 
I, I think the the audience or the you know the the people who love to go to films to people who love uh, superheroes people who love comics we're all winning in this yes uh but but i am a little concerned you do bring up an interesting point i'll go ahead and skip to this part in the show outline because this is relevant um i linked to an article uh this past week by jason snell over at sixcolors.com and i am so happy i can link to him now that he's not writing exclusively about technology and mac stuff <laughs> and i'm writing exclusively about movie stuff so i linked to jason snell um, and, uh, he, he, at the bottom of this article that I linked to, he has a list of all the superhero movies coming out, not just Marvel, but, uh, so May 1st, 2015 is Avengers Age of Ultron. July 17, 2015 is Ant-Man. May 6, 2016 is Captain America Civil War. And I'm gonna quit naming the dates. It's gonna take too long, but you got Batman yeah, yeah. v Superman, Suicide Squad. Those are two DC films. You got Doctor Strange, Gal- uh, Guardians of the Galaxy 2. Those are Marvel films. You got Wonder Woman, which is a DC film. Thor Ragnarok um, is a Marvel, Black Panther, Marvel, Justice League, DC, The Flash, DC, Avengers Infinity War Part 1, Marvel, I mean, Captain Marvel, Aquaman, Inhuman, Shazam, (laughs) Avengers Infinity War Part 2, Justice League 2, Cyborg, Green Lantern, I mean, I I feel, I'm I'm a little nervous about this, guys, I'm really concerned about this, I feel like we're going to get superhero burnout here pretty soon. Especially with Green Lantern following it all up. (sighs) I I already know I'm burned out on DC superhero stuff, I haven't even started, I'm already burned out on it. Well, I mean, to be fair, I've never really liked DC superheroes as much. And yeah. I think we've we've talked about this in past episodes, so I don't want to go all the way back into that. But this is something that I think you quoted at the beginning of one of the episodes that I was on when we said, I don't care as long as they tell good stories. Um, right. And I think I think right now. When I look at when I look back on this year in movies, even though I've seen more movies than uh, you know, I have ever in one year and the year's not even over with yet. The, the superhero movies, at least to this point are still kind of towards the cream of the crop for me. And so they're still telling interesting things. And as long as they can keep it interesting, I don't care what the genre is. I just want someone to tell a good story that is, uh, that engages me and that keeps me interested. Right. I and, agree. I mean, that's, a, that's the thing. Like with the people who are down on superhero. Movies, oh, it's another superhero film. Certain people, you know, certain types of people, you yeah, know who yeah. they are. And it's like, to me right now, they are telling the, some of the best stories, not, not all the best stories, but some of the best stories are the superhero films. And think of Captain America, uh, the winter soldier. I mean, what a fantastic film, despite a couple of its flaws with its villains, which Marvel has been having trouble with. Uh, such a fantastic film. And you've got, uh, y- you know, other films that just aren't living up that are they're supposed to be the dramas that you would expect to have better story from. And yes, our best story is coming from the comic books from Marvel specifically. So I agree. I'm just concerned about the superhero burnout. I don't know. Is, uh, maybe my concerns are unfounded. Is, as long as they keep giving us good stories, maybe we won't care. Uh, but but I think Jason Snell makes a good point. He's like, if these movies don't make people tired of superheroes, nothing will. Unrelated, I will probably see them all. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I mean, I'm just I'm concerned about the the burnout. I mean, because it's been so long. Like I feel like it's been so long getting here. Um, we've had some really bumps and and speed bumps along the way, should we say? We had a couple of we had one good Superman movie back in the '79, uh, uh, I think it was, and then no good Superman movies after that. You know, you had pretty terrible Batman movies mostly uh, up until Christopher Nolan. I mean, it's just been a long road getting here, and now it feels like we've hit the jackpot, and now they're just going to milk it for all it's worth. I mean, certainly DC is doing that. So I think I it's really a, a good idea, honestly, because if they don't do it now, I don't know that they will be able to keep the ball rolling. What we have is a, a generation of filmmakers that are in their game with superheroes, 
So what's going to naturally happen is the audience for the superhero movies has expanded while we have directors like Joss Whedon on board. <laughs> yeah. And then what's going to happen is over time as the audience fatigues and some of the people, you know, are honestly going to get tired of these stories and these characters, they're going to fall by the wayside. And what we're going to see, I think, is that the geeks, the ones that were always in it for the long haul and always were attracted to these characters are going to keep coming back to the films because you know what? They, they're actually the true geeks. Uh, right now it's mass audiences that are interested in these movies because we're seeing better production values for superheroes than we are seeing for much of anything else. And while we're waiting on the next star Wars franchise. So, uh, you know, what's going to happen is like I say, the geeks are going to take over the world, but for the meantime, it's, it's, <laughs> you know, it's different what exactly the geek culture is today from what, it, what it'll be in four, three or four years. In a few years, I think that the geek culture is going to shrink down a little bit again. It's going to uh, get lean. You, you think so? You think it will? Uh, well, can, I, I don't know. I want to, I want to kind of link this into uh, answer that question, but link it into another uh, link that you have in the show notes about the, the, the general comments on D- Disney's Marvel run. Oh yeah. By Michael Lopp. Yeah. Yeah. But because what, what I think is happening is Disney by, even though I'm not a fan of monopolies, Disney has basically almost become like a cinematic monopoly. I mean, they they've bought like Lucasfilm, and so they have Star Wars, they have Indiana Jones, and they have Marvel. So, like, what they're doing uh, with the Disney marketing machine is creating a new generation of fans for these intellectual properties. So they are basically creating brand new Star Wars fans. I mean, if you go and look at like what kids are dressing as Halloween, they're they're Marvel characters. Uh, th- there's like the the return with the with the Star Wars Rebels series uh, of like kids dressing as Jedi, you know, not like because parents think it's funny that their kids dressing as something that they watch when they're kids, yeah, because their kids really like it. So I don't necessarily see the nerd culture shrinking. Uh, maybe it it does because there's a, an offshoot nerd culture that comes about saying like <clears throat> we're we're true nerds, we're not Disney nerds, like we're this other kind of nerd because because Captain America is cool now because Iron Man is cool now because comics are cool now. Um, you know it's it's not it's it's cool to like star Wars. So we're a nerd culture that doesn't like star Wars somehow, you know, we're the original star Wars. Like <laughs> right, that, that, right. That's the only way I can see geek culture shrinking because to me, like I said, even though I'm not a, a huge fan of monopolies, the, the fact that Disney is putting their time and resources in what I would call the golden age of storytelling. Like this is the, be- like, like I said, we are winning as, as an audience We're we're getting, great directors, great screenwriters, great production value uh, into some of the most interesting things that we've grown up with. So we're already a built-in audience. And like I said, they're creating that next generation and they're getting quality in that next generation. They're not suffering through like the Dolph Lundgren Punisher movie like we did, or, you know, like this is like good stuff. And so I, it's win, win, win from where I'm standing. And I think it's going to carry through the 21 and we'll see what happens in phase four. Yeah. You keep saying monopoly, but they only have a monopoly because they're doing a good job. I mean, this is a naturally occurring monopoly. This is not a artificially created or propped up monopoly. Uh, like you, well, I'm about to get political. I shouldn't do that. Um, yeah. <laughs> but, but it, and, and it, it will break the monopoly will break if they're not doing a good job. So, but and that, that that's my concern is like, well, if they, if they push this too far, it, it's, it's like the angle of the plane ascending. Uh, I'm not a pilot, but, but I'm given to understand, and th- this would make sense with physics, that if you push the angle up too high, like you're trying to ascend, you'll actually like basically 
um, the, the plane will fall out of the sky because you're, 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 you're tilted up too high and you, you've lost your, uh, boy, I don't even know the right terms, but you know what I'm saying? Like there's an envelope there where you, if, if you're ascending too quickly and too high and too straight up and down, it's not going to work. And that's, that's what I'm concerned about. I'm concerned that their naturally occurring monopoly where they are giving a lot of us what we want will, will kind of phase out and trickle out. So. Well, I think they're doing a pretty good job of spacing most of this stuff out. If you look, at, especially at the Marvel uh, lineup, well, Marvel two, is for sure more. Yeah, yeah, we're getting like two or three movies a year, which is what we were basically getting before. They're basically, uh, uh, if you look at which movies come out in which years, you can see that they have like a new property, but it's anchored with another property that's going to make like eight hundred million dollars. So you know, they, they they've there's a lot of strategy put into this because if they wanted to. If they really wanted to, they could put out all these films in one year, but they don't want to. Yeah. Before we move on, and we do need to move on, but I just wanted to spend a little bit of time here on Michael Lopp's thing. Uh, In 2009, this is him writing, in 2009, Disney paid $4 billion for Marvel. It turns out this is a tremendous deal. Check it out. The first Avengers had a production budget of $220 million and worldwide total lifetime gross of $1.5 billion. The last Iron Man, released last summer, had a production budget of $200 million and a worldwide total gross of $1.2 billion. Guardians of the Galaxy, released this year, had a production budget of $170 million and so far a worldwide total lifetime growth uh, grow of $752 million. Um, you can check out the rest of the Portfolio and Box Office Mojo. The point is, it appears they've made their money back in five years and then some. So mm-hmm. it, it was a tremendously... I think we were all a little concerned... Uh, for instance, when Disney bought uh, Lucasfilm, I don't remember what I don't remember hearing that they bought Marvel, but I was concerned when they bought Lucasfilm. But I think maybe they have a good track record. They've really left Marvel alone. You know, they they have not really interfered. Well, so before with Luke, with like especially with Star Wars and stuff, George Lucas had no onus but to basically make himself money and tell the story that he wanted to. In Disney's hand, Disney's hand is basically like, how can we make as much money from this as possible in the long term? And they know that's by making good stuff. If they make like another, if, if this Star Wars, this J.J. Abrams Star Wars movie comes out and it is god awful, <laughs> they know that they're going to still make some money from it. And then the next one's going to make money and the next one's going to make money. But they're never going to make as much money as if they made great movies or if they put out great series. And if you, and from the people that I've talked to, so I don't know firsthand, so I guess it's hearsay, but like the, the way that they're going with the Star Wars Rebels franchise, like this is actually good Star Wars universe story. Like this is people stuff that people are interested in and they're gauging engaging with. Oh so, yeah, I know like, I for one will be in, in all over that. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Of course. So I mean, so they're like I said, they they're like, hey, if we do this right, we can make lots of money from this and it'll be mutually beneficial because Disney will rake in the billions of dollars and the audiences will enjoy going to do go see what they're seeing. And it, it's working. And I think you know, like I said, I don't think George Lucas was really concerned about that. You know, he was concerned about <laughs> right. putting Jar Jar in there. That's right. So that was that he was could sell toys. It's like he he he's like um, the fans don't want Jar Jar, so I want Jar Jar. Yeah, which is not yeah. actually true. He did take him out more in the second and third films, but anyway, we 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 need to talk about Fast and Furious Seven. Uh, so, <laughs> Me too. Uh, what's that? <laughs> We need to. We must. We have to do it, especially because I don't. I, I sense that Joe <sighs> just isn't speed. excited about this at all. Not at all. Not, not just a little bit. Not at all. Not at all. Okay, well, here, here's a clip from the trailer for Fa- uh, Fast and Furious 7. All right, let's get to work. Hey, Roman, you freaking out? No. Yes, you are. <laughs> Should somebody just walk me through what we're supposed to be doing? 
Just when you didn't think it could get any better, huh? Here we go. All right, so they just dropped out of a the back of a plane in cars and like you do. parachutes yeah. flopping out of the cars. I, this is the most ludicrous thing I've ever seen in my life, perhaps. And I saw Fast and Furious Six because <laughs> there were some ludicrous things. Yes, very ludicrous. That 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 in Fast and Furious Six, that uh, plane chase down sequence. I think it went on for about the whole third act. Like that runway was the longest runway I have ever seen in my entire life. Oh man, it's it's so great. It's like such a such a running joke between me and my wife. We so we went to Texas recently, and we were uh, when we were um, landing in Dallas, uh, the plane you know is coming to a stop and, and everything. And she just looks at me and stares for a second and says, "I don't think this runway was quite as long as the one that was in Fast and Furious 6. <laughs> oh, you my. know, no, no prompting. We weren't talking about it before. Like I just love that it's one of those things that. Uh, we'll stick with us no matter what, you know, Joe, did you see fast and furious six? I don't remember. <laughs> no, the, I, I have no interest in the entire franchise. Okay. I've only seen trailers and read reviews. Mm-hmm. And that's as far as I want to go. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, here's the thing though. And the reason why I'll probably go see fast and furious seven and I'm actually, Oh man, I did. Uh, please just kill me. I'm actually thinking about catching up on the franchise and, and actually just getting to know it a little better. <laughs> Uh, because frankly i didn't like i i I think i rated fast and furious six two stars but like in retrospect as i think back about it maybe i need to watch it again and remind myself why it was two stars i don't think maybe it was even quite that bad i was uh, you you always you always bring your prejudices into a film always 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 and you've got to try to be aware of it i'm not sure if i was aware enough of it or if i counteracted it enough and i need to give it a, a better chance i don't know um, so anyway, Fizz, I, I wanted to talk about this trailer while you were on the show because I knew that Joe would not even be interested and it would just be a really one-sided conversation. So, yeah, um, what, what, what is, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so what is your attraction to this franchise? You, you speak glowingly of it at times, I, I, I think. Yeah, yeah. And that's the key at times. So I've, I don't know if I've mentioned this before, but if I haven't, I want to say, uh, declaratively right now that I have an incredibly huge man crush on the rock. All right? <laughs> I think you've said that on this, on this right? podcast before I, I will go see. Well, okay. I won't necessarily pay to see it in the theater, but I will watch anything that the rock is in because I like, he is just oozing with charisma. <laughs> you um, say so. <laughs> and, and it's just, it's incredibly hilarious. Uh, like, well, hilarious at times, but just, I, I'm fascinated by his presence on screen like he just captures everything with having very minimal actual acting talent. So yeah, that's, that's my problem with the rock. So, but, but that's the thing. Like, so you, you recognize that going in for some reason, you know, there's just people that you love seeing act. Like I can't understand why anyone would ever want to see Nicolas Cage act in anything because he's yeah. revolting. To me. But there I mean, are lots of people who love Nicolas Cage. They just have this man crush on Nicolas Cage. And so yeah. I understand the concept of the man crush, even though if I don't agree where all the man crushes go. So <laughs> if you take that conceptually, I saw the first uh, two Fast and Furious movies because I had friends who just really wanted to watch them and they love cars and they and they did. And I think Paul Walker is one of the worst actors that has ever. Oh, what, act, what a thing to, to say. Dude, I mean, um, let the man rest in peace. I'm, I'm kidding. Well, he can. I mean, and he'll <laughs> he'll never have a bad movie again. I mean, so I just can't. I, I can't take. <laughs> I just got that. <laughs> I can't. I can't take his acting. I think it's terrible. So the first two Fast and Furious movies are to me uh, bad attempts at action movies with bad acting 
and flashy cars. Uh, the the series progressed through the next two, basically just capitalizing on the name, and then they brought the Rock in, and they they re basically directed the franchise. And if you watch the first couple Fast and Furious movies, and then watch uh, Fast Five, you'll realize that the quality of Fast Five as an action film, uh, like as a, just as a popcorn, you know, uh, May to July film, is in it's an incredible leap. And it's a lot of fun. Um, like I said, if you're willing to kind of accept it for what it is, Fast uh, Fast and Furious Six kind of basically does the same thing. And so I think they knew what they were doing when they, like I said, they brought the Rock in. They had a, a foil for Vin Diesel. It was it was uh, it, it was a, f- a fun franchise finally. And so when I watch the the trailer for Fast and Furious Seven, I see basically the same thing. Of course, they're probably rewriting it, and they're going to get a, a a little more emotional with this one. Oh with yeah. The, with the unfortunate passing of Paul Walker, but I think it's going to be that uh, the epitome of everything people want in a summer action movie. Yeah, um, I, I feel like typically. this will be a, a pleaser for the fans of the franchise. Um, yeah. I, I feel like that's what it'll be. Um, it is interesting. Uh, speaking of Paul Walker, he is featured prominently in this trailer, and we know he had a lot of filming left to do before he passed, and they had to completely rewrite the film. So I'm wondering where this is going. Like, what is what is it like? It, if they build him up to such a degree and then he's only in the first, say, first act or whatever, I, I, don't, I don't know how they rewrote it. It's hard to tell what they're going to do, but like that's going to feel like a letdown, though. Don't no, you it's, think? It's, it's all about marketing. So even if he's not in the film a whole mm-hmm. lot, then like they're reminding you that like this is the last film. This is the last Fast and Furious film that he's in. So make sure you go see it because he's in it. He's in it. He's in it. And if you if you're like me and couldn't really give a crap about his character before because you thought he's a terrible actor and he had no real character development um, because Vin Diesel was eventually what they made the series about. Right. Um, then you they're reminding you, like I said, through marketing, that you care about this character. You care about this character. So when you actually watch the movie, and inevitably something in the movie happens to him, you're you're going to care more. Um, but and, and that's the thing. So ultimately, you know, I will probably end up doing this movie surprisingly um, as a pop, you know, a popcorn flick on my podcast because this movie will g- get a bajillion dollars. Oh, tons certain, of people certainly. will go. And there's something about these, like I said, these popcorn flicks, these almost mindless, seemingly mindless entertainment movies that people are engaging with and people are connecting with. And so I can't wait to just talk about that. I can't wait to see what this brings and then just dissect this whole concept that there's there's nothing that people are gaining from these movies. So that's where that's where Fast and Furious is to me. But I would never stand up and say, you know, Fast and Furious needs to be up for an Oscar or really any award, you know, so don't, <laughs> don't, don't, you know, don't get me wrong. And, and in other worlds, I would probably be on Joe's side, but like I said, you add the rock, you, you up the ridiculous, you embrace the ridiculousness of the concept and you make that a movie. And I think it works. Yeah. I feel like I'm somewhere between you and Joe right now. Like, uh, I'm, I'm not hating on it nearly like Joe is. I'm kind of ambivalent and you're a little bit on the positive side, mostly because of the rock, which I really don't understand. He's such a bad actor. Yeah. But you're still willing to watch the entire series yet again to, you know, you're just, again, I've never seen it. Punishment, man. I've never seen it. I've, I've never seen the series. Oh, really? I thought you had indicated before you had I watched, seen some of them. I've watched the first – I mean I watched the last one, the previous one, just to see oh, what okay. it was about. I went to the theater. I wanted to see what all the hype was about. Yeah. And it just I mean, – it wasn't as bad as I expected it to be. I have to agree with Mike though that if I was going to watch any of them, the ones I would have to watch, be interested in watching are The Rocks. You know, I just – I've seen some of his other stuff and you know, it was okay. Mm-hmm. I, I didn't mind him so much. 
He's yeah, like a, so, um, he's like, um, what's his name? Uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger 3.0 or something. Yeah. Uh, if you say so, Fizz, I have to ask, how come he can get away with calling you Mike and I can't? Well, I, like I said, I respond to all these names. I've like, told you this before. Hey, hey you. Hey, yeah, I really, I'll respond to just about anything as long as I understand that the question is directed at me. <laughs> um, but you know, okay. Anyway, moving on. Uh, you were going to say something, uh, Fizz? Oh, well, I would say I would not recommend people going back and watching the first couple Fast and Furious movies. If you, for historical purposes, are just curious, maybe watch the first one. But like I said, in five, there is a shift. It stops being about Paul Walker. It starts being about Vin Diesel. And and like I said, and they bring the rock in and they, they really up like this whole line. They realize who the stars should have been the whole time. And it, for, and five gives you enough backstory that you have no problem continuing that series without having seen the first ones. Yeah. I guess part of my interest too, is that the guys in the slash film cast who are incredibly, um, uh, what's the word? Persnickety jaded. Uh, <laughs> they, they love this series. They just love it. And I'm saying, well, what am I missing? I, you know, because they're, they're incredibly picky about their films and they love to uh, deride things that I think are just fine. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just feel like they've been reviewing films for too long, <laughs> but, well, but, but I just, I just like, well, why do they love this franchise so much? So I, that's why I'm a little bit curious about it. Well, and we talked about this before too. It's about a film knowing what it is yeah, and doing it well. And that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be a great film, even if it does it well, it just means that, uh, you can appreciate it for what it is. And like I said, the, the first four, they don't understand that it's ridiculous and not, and they don't understand that they're taking themselves too seriously. Mm. Five, they're like, look, we realize this is a movie about explosions, people punching each other and fast cars. So that's what we're going to do. And we're going to do it better than all the other movies about punching fast cars and explosions. And, and they do. And so, like I said, you embraces what it is. It does a whole bunch of tongue in cheek stuff. And I can, I can get behind most movies that are bad, but they're good at being bad. Because like you said, we're still talking about the ridiculousness of the length of that runway. <laughs> yes, for sure. You know? Uh, it's pretty ridiculous. But it doesn't try to explain it. It doesn't. It just is like, look, the runway was long and lots of stuff blew up and it was awesome. And it, it leaves it at that. Yeah. Well, Joe, so. Joe, we need a transition. Yes, lots. Why don't we? <laughs> Come on, man. Where's your transition? I'm waiting on it. Oh, okay. Transitioning. Ridley Scott producing 3001, the final Odyssey as a sci-fi miniseries. Who here likes 2001, a space Odyssey? Uh, virtual hand raised. Okay. Yeah, I was going to say, is there a hand raised? Uh, can you see my hand raised? So, 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 so if both, you tell me so, then I can see it. Yeah. So, so both Virtu- of you like 2001. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I, I liked it too. I've watched it all the way through just so about once. you will be far more qualified to discuss this than I. Um, and, and, and don't, don't get me wrong. I understand why 2001 a space odyssey is such a classic. And I, I really enjoy some of the filmmaking techniques in that film. I really enjoy the craft of the film. I'm not jazzed about like, like it's just so boring. <laughs> um, that that's my problem with it. So, so I'm, I'm just telling you this not, not to make you hate me. Cause I'm sure that has made you hate me now, but, but just to, so that you understand, I don't feel super qualified to talk about this yet. Even I'm sitting here going, I don't know about this. So, so what do you guys think about this idea of Ridley Scott doing a, basically a sequel to, uh, 2001 and 2010? Uh, first of all, direct all of your hate mail to TJ Draper at moviebyte.com. Uh, that actually, I don't, I don't know if that'll get to me. Oh, okay. Well, it's, I'm, it's, I'm trying to help you, man. It's TJ at moviebyte.com. 
Uh, well, I was trying to help you. Anyway, so I, I, I'm in favor of it. Like a lot of people make a big deal of the movie. I don't feel like it's a uh, quite deserves the cult classic respect that it gets. I do understand the one thing it has going for it is the the cinematography. Mm-hmm. I think that the, it was absolutely incredible, fantastic. And for what it's worth, yeah, it is boring, but that doesn't mean that boring cannot excel. And this was one time when it, it kind of did. Uh, in a good way, like um, something that we're going to get to in the movie we're going to review in this episode. I think sometimes negative emotions uh, played out right actually cause uh, uh, an enhancement of the entertainment value. And this was one time that it did that for me unexpectedly. I just have a hard time picturing how the television series can live up to the original. And I'm sure because Ridley Scott has other films under his belt and he's a different filmmaker today than he was then. And he's had way too much time to think about what he would do with this. If he got the chance to produce it, the, the 3001 odyssey is going to feel uh, inevitably different from what we knew with 2001. Yeah. That one was, uh, you know, for the most part, you know, a, a movie with a production link, you know, time frame that was the same as your, your other average films. So, this being something that this filmmaker has had way too much to think about and way too much time to think about. I, I don't know if that's going to influence it positively or negatively. I think Ridley is a better director than say someone like George Lucas, who given too much time, <laughs> no ruins kidding. everything. Yeah. I mean, but you just give George Lucas enough time and he will ruin waffles. I mean, it doesn't matter what he is touching. So I, I feel better about Ridley Scott, but still it's going direct to the sci-fi station. If he really had something made of gold here, I don't see why he wouldn't just make a film sequel because his most adoring fans, those cultists, would prefer to have the experience in theaters. I think unless this is a deliberate move on Ridley's part to keep up with the times and go direct to television as a medium, because he thinks that's the future of television and filmmaking as we know it, or something like some of the directors are trying to do these days as a strategy, business marketing strategy. Well, Ridley Scott is so hidden hit or miss. Like he, yeah. he can do good films. I mean, um, uh, what's that film in 2002 that I love so much that he did? Um, what are we talking about really Scott? Yes. Yeah, so it talking it about was 2002 Gladi- space. 2000. Odyssey? I'm sorry. 2000. It was gladiator. gladiator like, yeah. so he did gladiator, which I love. And, and then he did Prometheus, which I hear really bad things about, you know, and then he does, uh, um, Prometheus, Prometheus wasn't as bad as everybody says. I, yeah. I reviewed that and it was okay. Okay. It, okay. it was, yeah. But I mean, my point is like, there are things that he does that aren't as good. And, and, um, you know, I'm going to also come out and say, I think blade runner is hugely overrated. Uh, you know, so is Alien, but but he does really good films, and then he does some that are that are you know kind of not such a hit for me. So I, I don't know um, whether he can do this well or not. And and yeah, the, the miniseries thing is really weird. Like why is why is it a miniseries? What is what is going on here? I I don't understand. Um, it is based, as far as I understand, on through on a book actually titled Three Thousand One: The Final Odyssey. Um, I, I think is is that actually the name of the book? Uh, I think it is. Um. So it's it's based on Arthur C. Clarke's uh, novel, you know, that followed, you know, in in the in the wake of it, uh, of the original. So I, I I don't know, I don't know. It'll be interesting. Sci-fi. I don't know if I've linked to it yet. Sci-fi actually put out a thing recently that said they've really kind of gotten off track and they want to get back to doing actual sci-fi. Uh, we'll see how that goes. Um, but yeah, well, I mean, after, that's what... after canceling all my favorite shows, you know. 
Well, that's what I wanted to mention. I am all for this simply because it's another example of sci-fi actually getting back to sci-fi. Uh, the, the 2001 A Space Odyssey, it like people think it's boring. And to a certain degree, you kind of have to be in the right frame of mind going into most Kubrick films. Yeah, for sure. Because they tend to be slow. But like which is 2001, fine. Yeah, which is fine. 2001 A Space Odyssey is like 160 minutes long. Okay? Um, so if you're going to make a 3001, you know, it's hard. It's really hard to green light a 160 minute long um, movie, especially when you want to put more stuff in, especially since we have the technology to put more amazing shots into a film. Mm-hmm. So I think the miniseries is the best thing because you don't want a series. You're not looking for a TV show because you have a limited amount of uh, content to work with. You're basing this off a book. Um, this isn't like Battlestar Galactica where you're basing it off a series. And so you just start the series and then you can keep going on and on, even though maybe you shouldn't at some point. Um, th- so they have a limited amount of uh, material. They want to do it justice. I'm hoping without limiting it, limiting it to a theatrical runtime and sci-fi is desperate to get back to its roots of sci-fi. And based because I read that same article that you, you you're uh, mentioning TJ yeah about sci-fi you know getting back to sci-fi mm-hmm. and I'm sorry that your shows were canceled but at the same time I'm very excited that I'm going to see sci-fi so they're launching lots of miniseries they're basically doing a, they're following in the um, the footsteps of like HBO um, and I think that's probably the best thing for them because that's what's working people will watch an eight episode uh, miniseries on something and if it's successful it can spin off something else uh, so. I, I'm excited. I, I saw that the writer was a guy who's written a whole bunch of movies that weren't exactly great, but I, I don't put a lot of stock in that. You, you can you can get a writer in a certain genre that he excels at better than others, and with the right producer and the right um, uh, artistic direction and a different medium than film, not having to squeeze everything into like a tight ninety minute runtime, you can do a lot more. And so, especially compared to the quality of the stuff that's for the most part on sci-fi now, I think this <laughs> yeah. will be a hit. I mean, that's the thing. Like, you know, even if you put, what, what, did, what did that guy write? Like, uh, it was like one of the Pirates of the Caribbean movies and a G.I. Joe movie. Yes. Like, compared it's to most boring. of the stuff on the sci-fi channel, now, like that stuff is gold. <laughs> yeah, but so, that's still worrying to me. Um, but, I, I did find that article, at least one of them. I, I think there was probably more than one, but the one on mm-hmm. IGN.com. Uh, and it talked about even, you know, I kind of agree, even the shows like Eureka and, and Warehouse 13, which I bo- love both of those shows. Mm-hmm. Um, even those were more earth-based procedural shows, unlike, you know, Battlestar Galactica, which kind of really raised the bar for all of sci-fi. Oh, um, yeah. you know, which, and, and, and that was, an, you know, yeah, it, it probably didn't need to be longer, <laughs> but it, because it, it was really starting to, to lose track, track of itself toward the end. But, um, yeah, so so you're you're in favor of of this miniseries idea is what I'm oh, gathering. I'm in I'm in favor of good science fiction. Yeah, yeah I yeah. feel like I've I've had a uh, an absence of really good science fiction. Um, so the new Star Trek movie's not doing it for you. Well, I mean, but you're talking you're talking <laughs> about like a, you know like a darts on a dartboard, man. I'm talking about like a sci-fi channel that at any time of day when you turn it on, you're getting quality sci-fi yeah we don't really have that right now 
You know, we have we have some we have some Doctor Who in this corner. We have a new Star Trek movie coming out every now and then, and we are getting ready to get some Star Wars, but we don't have it yet. That's not you know, really sci-fi though. That's fantasy. I call that fantasy. Not well, sci-fi. yeah. And like I said, so I'm looking for good sci-fi. I feel like we <laughs> did we talk about this when we talked about. Uh, do we talk about Edge of Tomorrow on here and how we don't get really good original sci-fi? Yes. And when we do, people hardly ever go see it. That's because true. We're, yeah. We're so we're so used to seeing bad sci-fi, and so you know, I want I want more. Um, I want more Edge of Tomorrow. You know, uh, even though the I didn't like the uh, ending, or I thought it was kind of pushed together. I want more Oblivion. Um, I want conceptually, even though it was heavy-handed, um, more Elysium, more District Nine. Um, so. I, I want that conceptually. You weren't on the one that we talked about Edge of Tomorrow, so I don't know what you're thinking. That was me and Chad. Um, I'm well, then we the talked. To, yeah, the, I'm gonna say then when we talked about it, then we definitely talked about it on uh, on Real World because we were so excited to get good, fairly original sci-fi. The same thing with Snowpiercer. I think we talked about it with Snowpiercer. You know, like this uh, this sci-fi element that we just don't see very often. Yeah, yeah, and I, I completely agree. I, I definitely want more Edge of Tomorrow, and I want more quality sci-fi. So so it's definitely of interest to me that Sci-Fi, the channel, is looking to actually get back yeah. to more sci-fi, the the genre. But um, speaking of sci-fi, David Fincher makes films. <laughs> yeah, um, they're not really sci-fi, though, and we, we really do need to move on. We're going to have a long podcast here. So uh, transition. Yes. <laughs> uh, what do you think, Joe? Are you ready to transition? Yes, let's. Why not? We can have a movie review here tonight, right? Yes, we do. So let me play a clip from the trailer for Gone Girl. Nick Dunn, you're probably the most hated man in America right now. Did you kill your wife, Nick? Everyone told us and told us marriage is hard work. Not for me and Nick. As you all know, my wife, Amy Elliott Dunn, disappeared three days ago. I had nothing to do with the disappearance of my wife. I have nothing to hide. Sammy got friends we can talk to? No, not really. You don't know if she has friends, you don't know what she does all day, and you don't know your wife's blood type. Just being a good guy, so everybody can see him being a good guy. Well, you really don't like him, do you? All I'm trying to do is be nice to the people who are volunteering to help find Amy. I will practice believing my husband loves me, but I could be wrong. You ever seen that guy in the glasses before? Amy is the kind of girl who attracts admirers. Whoever took her is bound to bring her back. I'm hoping you can tell me what this means. You want to solve Amy's treasure hunt? You seen this girl around here? Yeah, I remember her. I know you. I saw you at the volunteer center. I wanted to help. What'd she want? She wanted a gun. We are all scared, but we are all here now. I feel like something to be jettisoned if necessary. I feel like I could disappear. So I saw this film last night. Uh, boy, I'm, I'm still processing it. I don't know what to think. Uh, th- th- this was a very intense film. Uh, oh, yeah, sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, to put it very mildly. Yeah, very mildly. Yes, this was uh, a, an assault on the senses. Is that a, is that a correct uh, way to put it, do you think? No, I, that's one Fury, definition. Fury, it's, it's classifiably so, yeah. Yeah, fury is an assault on your senses. Um, <laughs> to a certain degree, this is more of a, will mess with your head. Yes. That, there you go. It, it, it really messes with your head. Like I, yeah. I was, as I was driving home, the theater is about 30 minutes away. The one that I went to from my house and I'm, I'm, I'm just my, the whole time 
I was actually listening to your podcast on it, Fizz, because I, I, I had been saving that until I was able to watch it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was just, I don't know how much I heard of your podcast because I was just trying to process the movie. <laughs> like, I, I didn't know what had just happened. Uh, so we, we should talk about some of the vital statistics of this film, uh, the, the stats. Um, this film was released on October the 3rd. We're, we're late in getting to it, but we're finally here. It was released on October the 3rd, 2014, had a budget of $61 million. Opening weekend is $37.5 million. Um, is that right? $37.5 million, uh on opening weekend? That's a, okay. Uh, worldwide gross now is $279.4 million, so I'd say it made some money. Uh, the critic consensus is that it's dark, intelligent, and stylish to a fault. Gone Girl plays to director David Fincher's six strengths while bringing the best out of stars Ben Affleck and, ben Affleck and Rosamund Pike. The director was, of course, David Fincher. It was based on the novel of uh, Gillian Flynn, who also wrote the screenplay. And it stars uh, Ben Affleck, Rosamund Pike, Neil Patrick Harris, Tyler Perry, Carrie Coon, Kim Dickens, and a few others. Uh, Missy Pyle, notably to me at least. Uh, I have an interesting story about that. In fact, why don't I just mention that? Um, (laughs) So I I noted that Missy Pyle was in the film. Of course, I know her from Galaxy Quest, and I'm sure I've seen her around in other places. Um, and, and I noted, oh, she's the, that's the, uh, anchor woman on that show. And, and then I came home and I had to watch something lighter, you know, a TV show that just, just to kind of get my mind off of, of, of Gone Girl. Uh, and so I sat down, we're, we're, fin- we're trying to get all through all of Warehouse 13 now that it's all on Netflix, my wife and I, and she was in the episode. Missy Pyle was in the episode that we watched. It was pretty funny. Um, so anyway, that's, that's, that's the deal. I'm not saying she's stalking you. I'm just not saying she's not stalking you. <laughs> yes. Yes. Uh, the composers. Interesting. Joe, you pointed this out. Uh, Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross. Why are there two composers? It's kind of weird. Yeah. And it really didn't sound like there was two different conflicting compositions throughout the film or anything. It was just a collaborative effort. Maybe one of them was an understudy or, uh, you know, his apprentice. I don't know. Yeah, so Joe, uh, this is uh, you like to tell us about the story of the film. Why don't you do that? Yes, let's. Well, this is just the summation I found on IMDb, written by one of the community. It says, on the occasion of his fifth wedding anniversary, Nick Dunn reports that his wife, Amy, has gone missing. Under pressure from the police and under media frenzy, Nick's portrait of a blissful union begins to crumble. Soon, his lies, deceits, and strange behavior have everyone asking the same dark question. Did Nick Dunn kill his wife? Did he do her in? And um, that's at least uh, half of the story. And uh, that doesn't just leave out the ending or, uh, you know, spoilers. It basically leaves out half of the entire film. I have to make way more than half. People, this film is hard to spoil because so much happens. Um, so uh, well, that's actually the thing. I think the marketing of this film is brilliant. It was, it really was because and I'm very thankful for it. I'm just saying yeah. that if you go into the movie and that's your, all of your expectation, you, you're going to get a lot more than you bargained for. Yeah. I certainly got more than I bargained for with this film. Oh yeah. My, my jaw was on the floor about what is it? A third of the way through this film. Even like, and I just have to say it because I mean, even knowing David Fincher, knowing how just how he rides my line of, of comfort level in, in house of cards. Uh, and I, even so I was, so I was expecting what we got, but not on the level that we got it. Um, it, 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 it didn't quite freak me out, but it kind of freaked me out. Does that make sense? <laughs> Like oh, I'm not scarred for life or anything, but it was it's a it's a freaky movie. 
No, well, this is one of the things that we had to talk about on our podcast because we were trying to define like the genre that this movie is. Yeah. And it was like, is it horror? Well, you know, you're not thinking, well, there's nothing like supernatural. There's no monsters necessarily. But, um, but there is. You know, but like, is this a, is this a psychological thriller? You know, is this a whodunit? Like, it, like the trailer makes it look just like a whodunit. But it's definitely not. It 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 pushes the horror so so far that it's definitely a psychological thriller. And I think the 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 place we came to is this kind of seems like a along the lines of like Silence of the Lambs. You know, like you never. Yeah, it is in that territory. Very much so. Yes, it's all like what's going to happen. What's going to happen. What's going to happen. What's going to happen. Like that's basically what you're saying the whole time. And though you never get lots of those jump moments that you do in most horror films, you're, it really messes with your brain. Like you never know what's going to happen next. This is, this is one of the few times that I truly, truly, truly had no clue what was going to happen. Cause you know, at the beginning of the film, you're like, oh, okay. Well, I mean, I don't know about you, but without even thinking about it, I will sometimes my mind will be churning and I won't even realize it until we get there. It's like, Oh yeah, this is exactly, this is about what I expected to happen. And so like, I'm, my mind is churning through this thing and then, and Oh, I, you know, I think what's going to happen is this. And then David Fincher just pulls the rug out from under you completely. You're like, Nope, that that's not where this is going at all. I mean, and throughout the whole film, every single twist was like that. Like I could not tell what was going to happen in this film and yet looking back at it, it's not like anything was completely illogical or like he just did really stupid stuff to get you there. It's just like it really, you know, I, I guess that's a sign of, of a good filmmaker. And, and David Fincher really has has got my attention and respect at this point. Um, I'm probably one of the few people in the world that haven't seen that many David Fincher films. Unfortunately, I need to rectify this problem. Well, that's the thing, though. I, I think David Fincher's not for everybody. I think he's an incredible filmmaker. But he he tell he typically leans towards stories and there's lots of criticism because he almost all the stories he ends up telling are inherently pessimistic. Oh, yes. I, I, I wrote in my notes that he is very, very, very cynical. Like he, he despises humans. He has no respect for humans. He thinks that. I mean, yeah, he's just super, super cynical. Yeah, he is incredibly cynical, so much so that there's almost or there's very little redeeming human goodness in any of his movies. Can, can I add a, a note, note to this? Here's the yeah. thing. It, I, I know that he could be easily portrayed as this cynical person. And, uh, you know, he's definitely not giving you happy endings and a lot of his films end as tragedies, but for what it is worth, there is a, a unique twist to his sense of tragedy and, and that I can appreciate for what it is worth. Even if his characters are absolutely you know, the, the scum of the earth for the most part, they wind up getting exactly what they deserve. Even if it's not Mm, literally a jail sentence or, you know, you wind up shot dead because you murdered somebody else that was important to the protagonist. Even if you don't wind up with a clear cut case of quote justice, at Mm -hmm. least, uh, you know, people, uh, uh, you know, you sow what you reap, you know, you're sorry, you reap what you sow. And that happens throughout his films. Like these people are jaded individuals who get what they deserve one way or the other. So on, you know, on the flip side, it'd be very easy to say, Oh, well he must be promoting evil. And somehow he's just like, just, you know, distracting us with a bunch of wiles and he's enhancing the flavor of sin (laughs) or debauchery. And I don't think he is. I think that even if you don't find there much, um, uh, you know, uplifting flavor to his movies on the flip side, at least he is being consistent with how wretched the world can be. And if it's wretched, 
it is evil and the side effects of evil are more evil and more uh, just sadness. There's a lot of sadness that goes throughout his films. So he doesn't play it up and excuse it. He doesn't make pardon for bad things happening. Right, right. Well, I mean, like, I, I was just thinking about this. I, I actually literally just, I, I tried to make a few notes beforehand, but I'm still trying to process this movie. Um, David Fincher, as I mentioned, is very cynical, but there, and, and he, he doesn't, like, his view of the humans are, are really bad, but, like, there is an exception to that. I mean, it's Margot. Um, she was incredibly, like, like, she's this character that, um, I really enjoyed and identified with. Um, and like she was like the one ray of hope in the film, actually, when you think about it, I don't know. Am I off track on in thinking on that? Uh, no, I, well, I, I kind of agree with you. Although we didn't really get to see Margot shine because she, she was always, you know, just a supporting role that was trying to help out the, yeah, but she, she was like the one that was, she was always the one that was there for her brother. Like she was the one that she was almost like the stand in for us. Like she was saying the things to her brother that we wanted to say to him like you idiot what are you what the heck are you doing honestly i think that she was there just to make the brother seem a little bit more uh protagonist worthy worthy because if somebody liked him then there must be something about him to like and if it weren't for her there'd be very little to appreciate about the guy yeah Go, go ahead, think, Fizz. you've been trying to say i was going to say at, at first glance i would uh agree with you on margo and I don't know how much we really want to say without spoilers. Yeah, remember, this is a I, film I that does not really need to be spoiled too much for people. Okay, so the thing with the thing with Margot is that I would say that she is still a pretty solid, flawed character. Oh, for She's, sure. Uh, because you know, if you step back and think about, even though it seems like she's saying very logical and sensical things, like things like you mentioned that we may want to say to Nick throughout the film, she still overlooks some very heinous evidence and heinous things that are going on to side with her brother, even though she should be first in line based on her revelations to turn him in or to rat him out based on, where from her point of view. Yeah. And I don't think she does. And so if anything, and, and I, I do mention this, uh, I have mentioned this before that the only character that I think is detached from the situation and is more or less the audience, like watching the film in the film is Tyler Perry's character of Tanner bolt. <laughs> he was Cause great. He, Cause he just keeps walking in and saying, Oh, this ain't right. You guys this are is messed up. This you are two of the most messed up. up people I have ever known. Yeah. And I'm dealing with messed I'm, I'm, I'm changing yeah. some of the words for because this podcast is very clean. But uh, he's <laughs> like, I, the, I, I deal with messed up people for a living. And you are two of the messed up people I have ever known. And, and that's I think that's the beauty of his character. So if I excluded anybody, I would probably exclude him because he's the one when we're getting too much into the film, when we're starting to think there are people who – like these aren't just characters of like there are people who actually act like this. He's the one that comes in and says, I just want to remind everybody that this is the most messed up like thing that people would get to if they followed like these character traits out to their logical conclusions, but it's not real because it's crazy. Yeah. Did, did, speaking so, of Tyler Perry, did you hear, did you guys hear that he said basically he would not have been in this film if he had known more about it and had known who David Fincher was and stuff? <laughs> yeah, I read that and have highly suspect 
beliefs of if that's true or you not. You think he's just saying it to play a character or, or something? I think I may have heard you say that on the podcast, on your podcast. It sounds just like good publicity. Well, okay. So Tyler Perry, um, the, the funny thing about me really liking his character in this movie is that I don't really appreciate most of the things that he does, do, or does, do's, whatever, do's, yes. <laughs> whatever he does, um, as a he filmmaker, does his, whatever he does. Is. Um, but because I, I think, um, <clears throat> he has made a career from making, I guess, subpar comedies. And, and I think he's more intelligent than that. And I think he's uh, a better actor than that. And so, but most of his, most of his films are films that are very, for the most part, family friendly. And he's making something that's way outside of his genre. Um, and I think he wanted to kind of be like, Oh, I didn't realize this was going to be this crazy film with some nudity and some violence and some crazy messed up white people. So, <laughs> um, because there were some crazy messed up white people in this movie. Yes, very much so. Um, yeah. So did you guys by any chance, uh, watch this, um, uh, thing that I put in the show notes, uh, David Fincher, every frame of painting. Yes, I did. No, I thought oh, it was really extraordinary. Yeah. It, it calls is, attention to a lot of his great film skills. It is extraordinary. And it's really made me want to go watch all of David Fincher's films because he really is one of the, the best in craft uh, at this current time. I mean, I like me some, there's several directors, there's several directors that are good in different ways, but David Fincher, I, and I don't know how I feel about this, his it, almost like the darkness of his style and, and the way he, he approaches filmmaking kind of appeals to me in a way that makes me uncomfortable with myself. If you know, you know, you know what I'm saying? Uh, but I really want to go and watch some more of his films now, uh, after watching every frame of painting this, this is, it's fantastic. Uh, so that, Have that'll be in the show seven? notes. I haven't. You need to start uh, there. Wow. I know. I know. You're probably not going to want to watch any more David Fincher films after you watch seven. Oh, <laughs> so what should I, what should I watch? What should I watch? I mean, David Fincher? seven's one of the best films that I've ever seen, but what? Like I said, it's like it, it's rough. Oh, you than thought this. this one was rough. Yeah, you just se- wait until you see seven. Seven okay. is probably three or four times. R- like I have, Ooh. I'm disturbed by seven now, um, <laughs> because it, it. Oh god, it's just messed up. So, there, there, there's people I know who have nightmares because they watch seven. So I'll, I'll come back to seven. Give me some David Fincher films that you 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 consider like I must watch. Uh, this maybe the Social Network is is light fair. Is. Yeah, I mean, like it's in it, the social networks are a great. Uh, uh, it's dark and it's David Finchery and it's cynical, but it's not like so painstakingly it's going to sit with you. Most of his other ones are like that. Um, uh, I thought the did, did the you like Benjamin Button? I didn't really care for it. No, I didn't. But that was the exception to the rule because that was the one where you know we we're talking about David Fincher and his cynicism. It's the one where he tried to make like a story that was hopeful, but he it, it, it was something that when watching, I feel like he didn't actually believe in what he was making. Yeah, and I agree. And and that that made the it just didn't tell a very good story to me. I thought it was shot well. It was fairly interesting, but it didn't have the punch that most of his stories do. And because I felt like there was something false false in that um, that artistry about it. Um, and I don't want to sound too whatever ethereal about it, but like it just, <laughs> it just, it just seemed false. Um, whereas most of his other films, even though like, for example, the girl with the dragon tattoo, I don't think was necessarily the best film, but like visually it's like striking. And it, 
it definitely has that cynicism to it. I just don't think the story is quite complete. I don't necessarily think that's his fault. Well, I'm, I'm, um, I am really on board with his visual style. Like that is the thing that like the signature thing to me about David Fincher right now is his visual style. And I love in this uh, every frame of painting video. Um, I loved the, the dissection of that. And I loved you know, some of the things they were saying and some of the things David Fincher himself says, it's like, what, what do you not do? They know you can, the audience knows you can do anything. So what do you not do? And I love the, the analysis of his camera work and how he doesn't, you know, he doesn't go to a close up is very often. And the older he gets, the less he, he does it, the more he directs, the less he does. And, and, and the reasoning makes sense. And it's, it's just stuff that even as a film, when I, when I was a filmmaker, I, I didn't even like, even though I studied the craft, some of this stuff it was new to me that it had never come up. Like, and he, he's just a master at what he does. Well, I'll say this. I, I highly recommend fight club. Um, it's, I think it's one of the best movies that have ever been made. First rule of fight club. Um, is only talk about Fight Club on the Real World Theology podcast. There you go. <laughs> um, uh, lots of people really like the game. Um, I thought it was okay. Um, Zodiac is another. I think Zodiac is probably has a very similar tone to Gone Girl. Uh, what, what's the one with Morgan Freeman? Seven. That's seven. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, but I would. I mean, Fight Club's amazing. Uh, the Panic Room is actually real well. I think it's a little slow. Um, that's why I didn't pick up with some people, but it's got that, some of that intensity. Um, so I like, I'm basically just reading all of his films now. I mean, he's done lots of other <laughs> things besides films. Like that's why Trent Reznor and him are such good friends. The, the dude that did the music for it, um, uh, because, uh, he's directed a lot of nine inch nails videos. Um, so he's directed, I think, uh, some, some award-winning videos for Madonna. I mean, like this dude like knows what he's doing. Yeah, I heard you guys say on the Real uh, Real World Theology podcast that he had done some Madonna videos or something. I didn't even know about that. Yeah, I mean, um, he's like if you go look at his videography, like he do, he loves doing music videos. Weird. That's really um, weird. Um, and like I said, it's not just that he's doing them for a paycheck. Like he, like I said, these he videos have these videos have won awards. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, like yeah. Well, we're just going to change the name of this podcast to the David Fincher Podcast. You cool with that, Joe? Okay, good. Uh, <laughs> so let, let's let's dive into this film a little bit more. Uh, the first thing I want to say about this film, I just have some general observations, and I, I'm sure we all do. Um, but I read this uh, review earlier today by Christy uh, Lemire. I, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. And one one line in her review stuck out to me. This is the most elegant, exquisitely made trash. Oh well, well that's a little bit harsh. What does she mean? Well, but but I mean, think about it. I mean, this film is about trashy people doing trashy things. I, I, it's just it, it's. Uh, I'm not saying that is a bad thing necessarily. Well, it, it, there's lots of films that came before this one. I mean, uh, it, let's go all the way back to Dial M for Murder or The the Psycho or, you know, there, there's lots of other films that do this. You no, know, I'm not saying they don't, but I mean, it's the most elegant and exquisitely made trash. <laughs> uh, I think I think trash is a little bit too far. Yeah, def- because it suggests it's not very palatable, whereas yeah, this I film suppose. is actually something we could yeah. tolerate and be entertained by. But, you know, this I don't want fi- to do the dump. Yeah. I don't care how beautiful it is. I'm not going to be entertained by the trash. Yeah, so, this isn't Fifty Shades of Grey. No, no, no it's know. not. Um, and I, done, I, I, with, I, done with uh, cinematography. But, or cinematography I can promise you that excellence. we will never review Fifty Shades of Grey <laughs> on this podcast. Um, <laughs> no, on the flip side, I do appreciate her sentiment. I understand what she's trying to communicate. Yeah. I read other portions of her review and I do agree when she says that it's uh, David Fincher's Alfred Hitchcock film. Mm. And I, I, I totally got that. Like, um, Amy Dunn, essentially someone that we, you know, we are not trying to go into spoiler territory territory, but she is straight out of a Hitchcock film. 
Um, yeah, and, almost. And she's almost not the like, only one. Almost like Psycho. If if it, 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 almost like what I wanted from Psycho. I didn't like Psycho very much. It's almost like what I wanted from Psycho. Like where where it was, you know, he killed uh, what's her name really really early in the film. And it's like, but I wanted to like, like that didn't make sense to me and it never did. It never ultimately made any sense. And this made that sort of plot make sense, you know, without, without trying to give it away. You know what I'm saying? Does that make sense? Am I making sense? <laughs> I'll buy that TJ. Yeah. Well, as I was gonna say, your words make sense, but I don't agree with them. <laughs> okay. Okay. Well, well okay. We, we can't do this without talking about spoilers. So here we go. We're oh, really we headed go. toward the spoiler territory. Okay. So if you haven't seen this film yet, please stop listening to this podcast temporarily go watch the film and then come back and listen to the podcast. Okay. So what, what I'm saying is that in, in, in uh, psycho, you know, he kills, uh, man, I'm forgetting her name. What is her name? You guys that are more fans of psycho help me out here. Let's call her Jane. Jane. That doesn't sound right. Anyway, he, he kills her extraordinarily early in the film. And it's like, there's gotta be something more to this. What's going on here, but there's nothing ever more to it. And in this film, it's like he kills our, our main girl, but then She's not really dead, and that's more of what I would have expected, perhaps, from Psycho, or, or kind of wanted, and 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 this gave that to me. It, it, it's not the exact same plot, obviously, but it's 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 kind of like it in that way. At first, you don't agree, yeah, Mike. Uh, I see corollaries, but I wouldn't well, limit it to Psycho. It's it's just something about Hitchcockian films, you know. You know, he he had his uh, villainesses and his villains, you know. Yeah, it wasn't exclusive. Well, I was going to say my, my big disagreement is the fact that like I, I don't really have a problem with anything that Gone Girl does and or the order that it does it in. M- mine is thinking that the the girl in Psycho needed to die later. I, I, I was perfectly fine. I think it was kind of brilliant the way mm. that he did it, which is why I think everyone thinks it's a brilliant film. Um, but well, I mean, there's lots of reasons that people think it's a brilliant film. But one of the reasons is him basically genre defying. Which is to a certain degree what this one does. Yeah. So, so coming into um, the point in the film at which it's revealed that Amy is not dead, uh, I agree with you now, Fizz, that I have no problem. And you know, now that I've seen the whole film, I have no problem with the order of, the, of events happen. But at the time, I was thinking while I was watching the film, man, why did all of a sudden he reveal that she's not actually dead? That sort of t- sort of takes the suspense away. I didn't realize what he had planned. Like. I was just sitting here going, what just happened? Why, we just found out she's still alive, but things are still go- like, like what's going on? You know, uh, why did he do this? Uh, well, it makes sense now. So I do agree in retrospect with you now, Fizz, that everything in that film is pretty much perfect in, in terms of the reveals and stuff. Yeah. And so here, here's where I, I kind of embarrassed myself a little bit. Um, due to what we talked about earlier in this episode, much earlier in this episode about my aversion for uh, trailers and spoilers, et cetera. When I watched, when I um, heard that David Fincher was coming out with a new film, I said, "Yeah, I'm going to watch that." Of course, don't don't need to see a trailer, nothing. I saw, you know, saw saw the posters, you know, the pictures, the stills from like slash film, things like that. Uh-huh. So I assumed that Fincher, kind of like he did with uh, Zodiac, like he did um, with uh, the Social Network, that he was basically adapting a true story. So I False. went into it. I, yeah. I went into it just assuming that it was based on a true story. Cause I mean, there's oh, lots wow. of stories out there that, you know, of like who killed their wife. Did they kill their wife? Did so-and-so kill their wife? Um, and, but I, because I never read anything about it. So I'm sitting in the theater and as soon as it cuts to like the Amy reveal, my mind just exploded. <laughs> a little bit. I was like, what is happening? <laughs> 
Oh my gosh, well, this just got amazing. I, I um, yeah, even and, and though at I that didn't, point I realized you know it, it wasn't. But even though I didn't have the perspective that you had, where I thought it was a real story, my head was exploding at several points in the film, and that was one of them. It's yeah. just like, what is happening to this film? I don't understand. So, but but so the the biggest strength of this film, I think, is the the way that it's unraveled, the way that story is revealed over time, because we fall in love, uh, or we we become very um, uh, sympathetic to Amy through the first third of the film. And then yes. through the second third of the film, we become a lot more sympathetic with Nick. And so by the third act, we are so conflicted and confused at, <laughs> as an audience that we're just like, what is going on? Which is why we need Tyler Perry's character um, to come in and be like, this is messed up. Like, just say so y'all know, like no one, no one's right. Like these people are both really. Like, that's why I love him coming in as Tanner Bolt, just being you're messed up, you're messed up. Everyone needs to remember that both these people are really messed up, and we shouldn't be on any of them's side. So it's like David Fincher took these two twines, these two differently colored twines, and he he kind of focused on one for the first act, and then the other for the second act, and then he took them both, twisted them up, and threw them in a blender and turned it on. <laughs> and it's like, what is going on? <laughs> so the, the the weakness of what happens is the first act is uh, I want to be careful about using the word realistic, but mm. uh, maybe maybe believable. No, yeah, it is very believable. You're absolutely it felt, right. It felt like a much more straightforward di- daytime TV crime, you know, detective story, mystery exactly. unraveling investigation at that stage. And so the second act still felt believable, but started kind of tiptoeing off the edge of the cliff um, into, into uh, fantasy. It, and it, so, it started feeling unbelievable to me when uh, Amy hit herself in the head with a hammer. That's when I was like, oh, what? <laughs> well, so, so, so it gets to that point. And then in the third act, it, it becomes almost like a character of itself. Mm-hmm. And like, I can see where people who were really into the first parts of the film think that it kind of gave up what, what it was doing because, you know, there, there's a scene where she's explaining, you know, to the cops, like what happened to her when she was with Doogie Hauser, and like, it's comical. It's like, it's comically unbelievable. Yeah. You know, like you, you have the one detective being like, well, can you explain to us how you got away from this person that was doing this thing? And, and everyone's like, Hey, Hey. She just got through doing this bad <laughs> yeah, thing. I, I found it really unbelievable that they believed her story hook, line, and sinker. And it was so unbelievable. Exactly. But that's what I'm saying. That was the progression of the story because you take these character types and you you basically start them at like 50%. And by the time you get both of them to 100%, the story itself is so unbelievable that you just have to be so invested in the characters themselves that you don't care. Right. And so people who don't like this movie, like don't like parts of this movie or don't like the second half of this movie, I, I, I get that. But to me, like I said, I felt that we were eased into it and Fincher just took us along for the ride. And with the with the performances of um uh Affleck and but more so uh Rossman Pike, like it was like I was there and so I didn't care. Yeah, I I, I get what you're saying, I completely agree. He really I mean, despite the, you know, Fincher can be considered a slow filmmaker, you might say, or at least I, I would say that people would, you know, people who like action films, you know, exclusively are not going to like this film. But for me, 
it like kept me on the edge of my seat the entire time i was sitting here going what and especially as you try to guess what's next and you're completely wrong it's just like what is going on what is happening next you know the entire time i was i was never not entertained by the film let's put it that way Oh yeah. I mean, it's been, a, it's been a while. I mean, and I, I really enjoyed, like I said, the, the, the Marvel films that have come out this year, but it's been a while since I have literally sat on the edge of my seat mm-hmm. in a theater for that long. Right. And this, this film did it and, you know, not to look too far ahead, but like, I, I was that way with fury as well. I was like, I've been waiting all year <laughs> for films that like just suck me in like this powerfully. And uh, we're finally getting that, which you know why. Why I'm excited about this time of year anyway, because you know we're start we're finally starting to get the the cream of the crop, you know. Yeah. Uh, all right. So a, a couple of my general notes that I've written here. Um, and, and one of the things that happened that this film kind of opens with Ben Affleck voiceover, where he's saying basically he's kind of his hand is like going across uh, Rosamund Pike's uh, blonde head, which as as the camera pulls out, we kind of see that he says. What are you thinking? How are you feeling? What have we done to each other? And then he says, I imagine cracking open her head, unspooling her brain, and trying to get answers. And and that makes literally no sense at the beginning of the film. You're like, what is going on? And now I go back to that line. I'm like, it makes perfect sense. <laughs> it's just it's so perfect. It's it's a gr- it was such a great way to open the film. You know, um, it, it, and you're sitting here going, what kind of a a, a what kind of a man is this? He wants to crack her head open and unspool her brain. I mean, you know, and, and it makes so much sense in, in retrospect now. Um, well, and it's the perfect way to open the film. If the first third of the movie is supposed to put you on Amy's side. Right. And, and it very much does. Cause you're sitting here going, in fact, I, I'm, I was, um, I was going through the film as we were watching it going, I know that their marriage is going to break down somewhere, but they keep going to these flashbacks where they have this wonderful marriage and they're, uh, wonderful by certain standards, right? Um, and <laughs> and uh, they're they're getting along wonderfully, and and they they're they're witty with each other, and they love each other, and they're always want to be with each other, and like, wh- at what point does this break down? And so you're sitting here going, man, he really is a jerk. Like he's just like he he was calling her names and saying what a uh you know what a troublemaker she was and oh she wants to do the stupid you know treasure hunt thing uh you know and then they'll do a flashback where they're having this wonderful time and she's nothing but sweet to him and and it really is effective that way right Mm -hmm. um so and this is kind of one of my other notes i wrote is this the narrative is constantly shifting in subtle ways um and and some not so subtle ways but but during during like like there's big shifts and then there's the small shifts um, and, and you start to see a little bit of a peek into, well, she seems to be a little bit scheming and conniving. And then all of a sudden there's this major shift like, whoa, what just happened? Uh, it's, it's pretty, pretty incredible. Mm-hmm. Um, Joe, you've been pretty quiet. I have some other things, but I know you probably have a lot that you want to get out there. Well, I'm just uh, thinking a lot and mulling over these different ideas because what's funny for me, and I don't know why I did this, but when I was watching the film, to be honest, I very quickly sided with Nick Dunn. When he said that at the beginning of the film, I thought it was very shocking. And at the same time, I thought, this doesn't sound like an insane person observing this woman. This sounds like a very sane individual that's trying to figure out something very insane to him. And for that reason, I don't know why I just began to suspect the wife immediately. And I must be <laughs> one of like only 1% of the entire audience, perhaps that even saw this. Coming. I was, I mean, I would say I was never completely on her and, team, but I, I, I was like, boy, he's a real idiot. 
Well, and after after that moment at the very beginning, when she got the opportunity to play narrator and you hear her story unfolding in the journals, I thought, okay, now this is ridiculous because everything that she does in her journals is basically, I'm perfect and I don't know why the world is against me. And so when I heard that, I thought, okay, that is a little bit too convenient because the all the other characters are jaded individuals that are, yes, trying to do the right thing, maybe, but they also have their flaws and they're written all over the entire screen. So what is with this one character who is idolized? Because at the beginning, they establish there was the storybooks about Amazing Amy that uh, Amy Dunn's parents had written about her as she grew up. And supposedly, Amazing Amy's storybooks for children were this little girl's life story, like, uh, you know, through rose-colored glasses. Only and they weren't. It, Talk about messing the poor girl up. Yeah, yeah. I mean, ultimately, um, you know, she's here's, an only child that here's gets Here's Amy, up but by. better. This, this is how she could be better, and we wish she was like this. I mean, whoa, man. Well, yeah, I mean, clearly they were bad parents, and that was one of the justifications <laughs> for letting Amy go absolutely crazy. But... I let me back up here a minute. When they revealed that she was still alive, I also wasn't surprised by that either. I mean, like, I, I, what I'm, I guess I'm trying to say is I'm not trying to say, hey, this movie was lame because I, I, you know, I saw the twists coming a mile away. I'm not trying to say that. What I am trying to say is that I'm surprised by the number of people who didn't see any of the twists coming because I'm not usually a guy who sees the twists coming. I don't usually notice those things unfolding. No, no, this actually makes perfect sense, Joe. Your brain apparently is wired backwards. I I guess I am. (laughs) I must be crazy. I must be related to Amy or something. I don't know. No, 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 no. Let's not go there. When I found out that she was crazy, I was like, no, that makes perfect sense. We're just like, um, no, really. um, (laughs) Going back to Ben Affleck, I wanted to mention one thing. We haven't talked much about his performance or his character, Nick Dunn. He was fantastic. Absolutely. And you know what I loved about him is he is this like, blithe idiot and lazy loaf and what's unique about him is that he's not an especially likable guy but this sort of character hasn't received much screen time in other movies before now so the mere type of character that he is is somewhat intriguing and aggravating at the same time but done gives you the right kind of aggravation and aggravation that enhances the enjoyable process of the, the duration of the film for its two hours and a half of entertainment. Like I, I was really annoyed with him because at every turn he was so consistently a bum or just like an idiot. But then at the same time, I, I don't know why, but it was like he was compelling as a sub in for a decent protagonist mm. because I admit I, I had to think about it and I was like, you know, we just don't see this, this kind of character very often given screen time because he is kind of adult, but you know, what's sad. It's true. He is somewhat reflective. of A lot of, uh, you know, modern people today, a lot of people are like Nick Dunn. So I, I felt like, you know, in some respects, this movie gets some brownie points for displaying realism in an effective way in storytelling that we don't often get to see going back to psycho you know, it, it, there is the sensational value of what Norman Bates is willing to do. And Jane, who's actually Lila, I looked her up. Her, her name is Lila. 
Um, Lila does some extreme things that you wouldn't have thought was, you know, uh, true about women in that day and age. You're like women can't perform crimes. Really? Uh-huh. Actually they can. And <laughs> the, you know, the way it was portrayed was actually believable for its time. If you would just stop to think for a moment, yeah, women can do bad things too. So I, I appreciate the level of not just the, the, I mean, like we've already said a lot about, the scariness, the the thrilling stuff about this movie. Mm-hmm. But what I, I wanted to note here was that in spite of how insane this movie could get at times, I also appreciated the value of how realistic it seemed to be portraying people that were doing very desperate things. Uh, and I thought to myself, wow, <laughs> we don't see this kind, this, you know, brand of realism very often. And I'm glad we don't, but I can see why these things would unfold this way. Like going back to Margot, you're totally right, Fizz, that she has her flaws for sure because she's making condolences for her brother that, you know, no protagonist ought to be making. But at the same time, if it was your brother or sister and you already had a good history with that sibling, it'd be really hard not to just, you know, overlook a multitude of sins. Because you'd be like, you know, I have no other decent family. My parents are dead. I don't especially have any other family and friends. This one loser is my partner. (laughs) And uh, what am I going to do if he's gone? What do I have to live for even? And so um, I I thought her kind of character was justified. And and in a sense, very sad sense, it was portrayed rather realistically. And that was something I didn't expect from this film because I had seen his other movies um, going back to seven for a second, definitely an intriguing film, definitely bizarre. And like I said, it's a bit more nightmarish. This film felt like, yeah, it could belong to somebody's nightmare, but it could also belong to a real case file from the police department. Yeah. I would say that even though I don't think, well, I mean, I know that reality is sometimes stranger than fiction, but in this case, this is something where I never think it would get this bad. But I think that if someone lived through something similar to this, when they were thinking back about how it felt, it would feel this bad. Mm. Like yeah. I said, it, feel, it feels yeah. like an amplification of these situations. Like this is a bad situation, but in Gone Girl, it's bad plus one. You know, just pushing it a little too far. Turned up to 11, you might say. It's like, yeah, it's just just one more. One more. I mean, obviously, 11 is is higher than 10. I'm sorry. Anyway. Exactly. (laughs) Just one more. Yeah, so so going back to Ben Affleck, um, I'm not a Ben Affleck hater. I don't get where some of that hate comes from. Like, um, you you, you tell me to choose which actor is worse, Nicolas Cage or Ben Affleck. Some people would have a hard time with that, and I'm going to go, well, Nicolas Cage, obviously. Um, so, so Ben Affleck, I mean, I've liked him in what I've seen him in. I, I think that he, he's not really good at playing a lot of diverse roles, but he has a little bit of a range, <clears throat> excuse me. And, um, y- you know, just look at the difference between his characters in one of my uh, favorite films of 2012, Argo, um, and, and his character here, Nick Dunn, Gone Girl. I mean, there's, there's definitely a huge difference in those two characters, um, and, and I liked both of those films. Um, I also really liked, uh, the sum of all fears, which I know Fizz you didn't like, but, um, wait, did I not? I'm pretty sure you told me you didn't. The sum of all fears. He played Jack Ryan. Mm, nope. I don't think I've ever talked to you about that film. Um, maybe I'm thinking of somebody else. 
Because hmm. I don't, I don't even remember seeing that film. You, you, yeah, I, I, I love it. Anyway, my point is like he. Maybe that's why you think I'll hate it. <laughs> Probably so. <laughs> Based on empirical evidence. Uh, yes, yes, I, I, I think that's where we're going here. So, um, I, I do think that he needs to be cast right, and he was cast so perfectly here. Like, he, who else do you know? that could could find the right balance between hey I'm an, a bumbling idiot and I'm a kind of a a, a douchebag and 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 yet you you wanted to like him like he wasn't a, 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 so even though he made some mistakes you were still kind of on his side I mean and and ultimately I did wind up on Nick Dunn's side as the movie progressed right um certainly not on Amy's side but yet you know the one of the notes that I wrote here is that these two deserve each other <laughs> uh in a lot of ways like like he in what world after everything that amy did do you choose to stay with that woman no way i am out of there i don't care what the consequences are i wouldn't feel safe sleeping at night well this is the conclusion of the movie though like i mean they 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 deserve each other that's exactly what they want it's what i mean like amy's not lying or lying when she says to him at the end, like the only time you liked yourself was when you were trying to be someone this bleep might like. Right. And, and, and Nick, <laughs> Nick realizes that. And Nick as for as scary as it is, Nick does love, like he, he was uh, uninspired. He wasn't doing anything. He was like sloth, like and lazy and the lovable idiot. But as soon as like, he had to step his game up to try to, you know, to go on that, uh, to go on the, uh, uh, the Ellen Abbott TV show, no, not Ellen's, but the Sharon, Sharon show. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and give that thing. Like he was back on his game. Mm-hmm. Like, and I think he enjoyed it a little bit. And so I, like I said, they, and that's why people were like, is this movie about, you know, uh, does marriage cause people to be fake, you know, it creates that conversation. But the, the reason they're together at the end isn't because he's living in fear. It's because he's embracing the fact that even though it's un- wild and unpredictable, it is what he wants, which is why it's hard to be on either of them's side at the end of the movie. True. Yeah. Yeah. So um, we also need to talk a little. I know we've, we've I think we've kind of hinted at it, but we haven't specifically talked about Rosamund Pike, uh, who was also fantastic in this film. Um, like she was scary. <laughs> oh, yeah. Right now, if I if, you know, having not seen uh, the movies for November and December, uh, R- Rosamund Pike would have my vote for best actress based on this movie. Yeah, I mean, I've seen her in like one other thing. I think it was Jack Reacher that I saw her in, and whatever, she was fine. This, she like blew me away in this film. Like, how? I mean, just the the way she was able to elicit that sympathy that we've talked about in the beginning of the film, and then just all of a sudden twist it, and yet she still felt like the same character. And it was just, it was very masterfully done. Oh yeah, uh, and I, I know a lot of that is direction, but you can't n- overlook the actress in this. I mean, like not not any actress would have been able to pull this off. Um, well, so. you say it's like one of those times, like people don't realize how hard it is to, uh, and they make fun of this in Tropic Thunder when you're like you're a dude playing a dude who's trying to be another dude. <laughs> um, so like you know, Rossman Pike's like an actress pretending to be a character who's pretending to be you know, a fake version of that character self um, who's then having to hide from something else. Like, so people think it's easy. easy. 
Yeah, people think you can skip the two in-between steps and just act like the person would in the end, but it doesn't work because that you have to take those character pieces into that that third level or fourth level. And she does it amazingly because she she uh, goes back and forth across that line of like psycho and perfect perfect wife. Oh, she's completely you psycho. Know? So uh, it's just she, in it's in, a, in a strange way. Um, not not obviously the comparison is not absolute, but in a, in a way she reminds me of how Heath Ledger portrayed Joker. Um, just. But, but more refined, more subtle. Like the, there, there was that crazy that the Joker mm-hmm. had, and 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 she. But but it was like she threw herself into that role so completely. Like I couldn't tell anything about where the actor or the acting was taking place. Does that make sense? You know what I'm saying? Like a yeah. lot of times you can look in and you can see the acting, but it it she really threw herself into that role. I mean, it was so easy to tell that she really, really did that thing that Heath Ledger did with the Joker. You know, what what Heath Ledger did to Crazy in the Joker is what I think Rossman did with Determined, right? Like in in this Amy character, like she would just flip on the switch and suddenly there was so much determinism in her, like her eyes and her her movements. It was just like you were completely enthralled with where she was going, and you never knew which you know when she turned around or when she opened her mouth, like which one it would be. And it was crazy. So at some point, I'm, I'm I'm questioning myself because I look at David Fincher's work that I that I know of and that I'm trying to rectify, but that I know of, and I say, man, that was perfectly cast. That was perfectly cast. I mean, can you think of another person to play Frank Underwood than uh, uh, than Kevin Spacey? You, you you can't do it. I mean, can you think of another person to play um, uh, his his wife than uh, Princess Buttercup? What's uh, Robin Robin Wright? I mean, it's 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 amazing. And at some point, I'm sitting here going, now I'm going, okay. Was it perfectly cast, or was it perfectly directed, or were, I mean, maybe there's it's such a combination there. But I mean, th- this movie, as I think about it, it really was perfectly cast from the top to the bottom, like all the way down. You got Tyler Perry, Kim Dickens, Carrie Coon. I mean, every one of these characters was so perfectly cast. Well, I, man, so this is a this is a conversation I've had to have too because there have been some criticisms of. Neil Patrick Harris in this movie. No, oh, he was, I thought he was perfect and I didn't mind him, but most of those criticisms have come from people who've actually read the book mm, okay. and, and they, I think make a fair point that in, in retrospect, I wish there would have been. And that was the lack of kind of characterization of his character. So he comes in and it apparently in the book, he is a lot less like feeble and needy, I guess. Hmm. Um, I, I'm I'm, like, I'm trying to explain uh, explain something that's been explained to me, so I, it might not be exactly perfect. But he's he's a lot cooler and normal in the book, not overtly creepy. Um, so apparently that 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 didn't that didn't work for him, and I don't know if that was Neil Patrick Harris either not being given enough time to develop in the movie, or it was him not doing enough with what he was given or the change from the book to the movie was enough to not let that develop like people who'd read the book wanted. So there's some gray area there. Other than that, I would say it was pretty spot on because it was either you or Joe who asked earlier who could do kind of like the lovable idiot as well as Ben Affleck. And I think there are a few people who could, the only person that comes to mind is maybe John Hamm, but uh, even then he might be too, too good looking 
to pull that off. So, all right. I um, think Neil Patrick Harris was, uh, you know, understandably a side character for the film. Perhaps the character plays a, a bigger role in the books or the book. But for what it's worth, I think that you can get away with a lot more in a novel than you can in a movie. And for the sake of how they were trying to pitch his character, I think that they wanted to convince you at one or two possible moments in the film that his character would wind up being the villain at the end of the film. So I don't think that they wanted to portray him perhaps certain ways that that might have been a conflict for how they wanted to pull it off in the film versus what it was doing in the books. I don't know. But that thought has occurred to me. Mm-hmm. All right, you guys want to talk about some things that you didn't necessarily like about this film? Uh, I know we, I, I think Joe, you've mentioned a few, but maybe in a little more focused manner, because um, I've pretty much hit most of the things that I like. The only thing I really haven't said anything about was the score, uh, which which I thought was perfect. It, it, it's weird. It's like again that mixing of genres. Like it had elements of horror scoring. Like, you, but but like everything about the score really just drew you into that film. Uh, so yeah, that, that was really the only thing on my list of likes that I haven't touched on. So, uh, so see, honestly, I I didn't think one way or the other about the music. It was Mm. actually so effective. I didn't even notice it. And that's a really good soundtrack. Yeah. Well, it's not the type of soundtrack I would ever go and actually just listen to. It's not that kind of soundtrack at all, but it was really effective for the movie. I thought, um, all right, so, so, so some things that we didn't like about the films. Uh, some, here, here's what I didn't like primarily about this film is that I enjoyed this film, and I'm not sure I should have. Like, <laughs> like this film is such a sick and twisted film in a lot of ways, and I'm like, should I really like this film? Why do I like this film? I'm not sure I should like this film. This this worries me about myself. <laughs> it's like watching a movie about an island of people being taken out by a volcano and you're thinking to yourself, why do I like this movie? The yes. people are dying. It, it was it was like watching a train wreck and enjoying it. And I'm like, I'm worried about myself. I'm really worried about myself. Uh, well, what about you guys? I, I have my dislike, but it's a bit more um, specific than that. I, th- that didn't in particular bother me so much. What really concerns me is some of the people who are impressionable who might wind up watching this kind of film and they really don't have any business watching this film. Absolutely. I, mm-hmm. I'd be wary about you know certain young audiences and even adult audiences who just don't have their head in the game who go to see this kind of film and what they're coming away with is uh, chuckles, you know, because they're the same crowd that ultimately just laughed at how cute the Joker was in the Batman, the dark Knight. Who does and, that? Come on. Oh, people. I heard loads of people laughing at him and they just totally ate him up and loved him uh, like a teddy bear. What? But those what? kinds I mean, like, of people bother me. You're blowing my mind, Joe. I'm, I'm just saying people dress up their happened. kids like, the Joker. I mean, like, who does that? Who does that? That is so gross and sick and disgusting and twisted. And it, yeah, it is. And that's my point exactly. Like, you know, there's there's enough deranged people in this world that I I would rather the uh, the impressionable people and the deranged people not kind of catch this film. Mm. <laughs> but, uh, for and you know, it's also going to be offensive to others. I don't really want to critique this movie for content. I was expecting you to, TJ. I mean, that's that. We'll get there. Okay, because I mean, I would put this categorically in the dislike section because of my experience with the film, not necessarily a problem of the film, but my personal dislike with my experience is that 
I really can't recommend the film. Right. That's where I'm at. Just like I, I, I can tell the whole world, Hey, this was an amazing movie. The film craft. Excellent. David Fitcher did something really impressive. Should you see this film? Uh, no, probably not. <laughs> <laughs> like, and I wrestle with that just because of the content. Like I know you'd be offending people for a thousand and one reasons. We're not just talking about, you know, religiosity or no. you know, content about violence or sexuality, but it's, it's a mixture of lots of things. There's a lot of people who would be bothered by how it portrays America. I mean, I'm, and I'm not yeah, saying that that, 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 not so much. It didn't bother me. <laughs> That, that, but, I feel like I mean, that's pretty spot on. Yeah, you, we yeah. should accept the reality of some things. Um, but yeah, and, and again, the, I, I'm, I'm empathizing with people that I don't nece- and I don't necessarily share their points of view. I'm just saying I, I do recognize their points of view, and I would never be able to recommend this film to anyone else in my family. Yeah, uh, for, but I might watch it with my wife. For so. me, it, it, it's a really hard film to recommend because it's so disturbing. Because there's uh, some some graphic sex scenes, and because it's there's like just even the the way in which Amy kills uh, very graphically. Uh, what's his name? Um, uh, no Patrick Harris. No Patrick Harris. Yes, I'm looking for uh, Desi <laughs> Desi Collings. Um, I mean, it was that was I mean. Like that at that scene, I was literally like covering my eyes, going, "Oh my gosh, I can't it's okay, believe TJ. it!" Yeah, no, Patrick Harris is still alive. It wasn't real. <laughs> I yeah. know, but it's it was really that graphic. You're like, "Whoa, what just happened?" I mean, and it was so quick too. Like she just reached under that pillow and grabbed that razor, and it was it was like, "Whoa!" Do you know how many great jokes this is going to give us for the Oscars when he hosts? Oh no, no, I don't even want to think about it. It's going to be awesome. Uh, okay. So yeah, (laughs) but, but I mean, honestly, Joe, I, I did expect this going into this film. Um, uh, so it wasn't, uh, it it wasn't surprising to me. Uh, maybe the amount of, of violence and graphicness, uh, was a little more than I expected, but I did expect it. So maybe that's why I'm not reacting against it as much as I otherwise would. Um, I was going to say it's a David Fincher film. So I was, I thought it was about on, on par with what I expect from most of his films. And, and, it, and you know, Joe, you did have an interesting point earlier that it's it's a sick and twisted movie, and it shows us kind of the depravity of man. Like, you know, I, I fear that maybe it revels in it a little too much, but it, it definitely some of the points you made earlier were were kind of spot on in, in regards to that. Um, I would say that my my one of my other primary things uh, that I I didn't like about this film is that it um so so it's dealing with like like trust issues and truth and, and human nature and marriage and I, I fundamentally don't agree with David Fincher's viewpoint on most of that stuff um like like his, his um his position seems to be at least from this film is that you can never truly know another person and I, I fundamentally and completely and totally disagree with that well uh, to be fair I don't necessarily think that's David Fincher's view like, because this is this screenplay was adapted by Gillian Flynn from her own novel. So it's kind of like her cynical take on marriage yeah. and it's just told through the lens of David Fincher. Um, now it does help for him to have a generally cynical, cynical view of human, humankind. But the, the thing that I think is one of the, the things that you guys are talking about as dislikes, the, the not being able to recommend it to everybody, it, it wouldn't probably make my dislike list, though I would agree that I would not recommend this film to everybody. Um, the One of the things that I really love is that 
thing that the fact that you're asking yourself, what does he believe about marriage? Mm-hmm. Like th- this film, I think is almost impossible to walk out of the theater and not ask yourself questions about like uh, the American media, the mask that they force uh, people to put on. Sure. Uh, absolutely. Uh, the, the judgment of the media and, and uh, the, the mass culture judgment of somebody over one situation, the thoughts on marriage and stuff like that. It really does bring out fantastic questions like that. Absolutely. And, 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 there, and some of them we haven't even had time to touch on. Yeah. And that's the thing, because there, there are so many of them in there. And typically you get these with um, how Fincher ends up kind of presenting story because we never, we, we get what we're told they feel about marriage, but they don't necessarily agree. Um, and we definitely don't agree. I know, I know we don't, um, with, with what's presented in the film, but that means we have to, we have to discuss it because I, much like the characters, much like the narrative itself, you know, everything's the, the turned up to 11. I think their, their understanding of, or how they present marriage is also turned up to 11 with, you know, now, but there are some very poignant things when, um, you know, when Amy, there's the scene when Amy explains what every guy really is looking for in a, in a wife, um, I think that hits a little too close to home for most people. And then, you know, when she describes uh, what people end up doing because of marriage, even though it's not the way that I personally, you know, uh, walk into my marriage and TJ from, you know, what you're saying, it's not the way that you approach your marriage. It's the way a lot of people approach marriage. Mm, yeah. And so it, it's, it's connecting with people. Um, and, I don't. I think it's easy to say we don't agree with it because we don't want to agree with it. But that doesn't mean that it's not, like I said, the the eleven version of most people's marriages. I think it's not really exclusive to marriage, though. The commentary in the film suggests that this is a well, it's a commentary on marriage. But I think it's really not limited to that. Oh yeah, and and that kind of annoys me a bit that the critics are, or I should just say the the reviews are coming in that. There are some interesting insights into the dark side of marriage in this film, and it made me shudder to think about how true it kind of is. And it's like, well, you know, what you're saying is really just not limited to marriage. Think about your relationships to your your girlfriends, your your best friends, uh, your children. You know, everything gets dark and creepy if you want it to. And, you know, uh, obviously we have seen that with dozens and dozens of other horror films and thrillers. I, I have appreciate what they're saying, but, and what I think they're really hitting on isn't just that it was a, a good, uh, there was good in, or intriguing ideas brought to mind about marriage so much as this was just really well scripted. There are some great lines in this film. Mm-hmm. They, I mean, even when it was, uh, mm. you know, down and dirty and, you know, in your face, uh, with some of the profanity, it was, really well scripted and <laughs> it was really compelling, compelling storytelling through dialogue and considering how much of this movie hinged on dialogue. I know a lot of people who would shun dialogue. You know, they're all for the show. Don't tell. I think that's overrated. If you have a really good, powerful script, you know, if it's really entertaining, if it's working, that's really, that's really rare. Uh, and th- that just goes back to the quality of the, uh, you know, Jillian or, or is it Gillian? Jillian. Thank we're you. Saying, we're saying Jillian. All right. So, so even Jillian. if we're wrong, we're all wrong together. Thank you. That's where we belong. <laughs> yeah. But I, I'm just saying I like the script. 
right, guys, we, we do need to bring this in for a landing. I'm, I'm sure that all of our listeners have stopped listening at this point. Um, this is an extraordinary long episode, uh, which is fine. I've uh, enjoyed talking about it. But I do want to give people kind of our bottom line before we sign off. <clears throat> so, uh, Joe, why don't you uh, kick us off with your kind of bottom line and your star rating, and then we'll move on to uh, Fizz. Okay, uh, I say that it's beautifully scripted, acted, and edited, and it pushes all of the right buttons to be a thought-provoking and meaningful thriller. It lacks morals, but it makes up for it with the Hitchcockian flair for surreal plot twists. And uh, so for this reason, I give it, you know, four and a half out of five stars, which is the first time I've given a film four and a half this year. And I would not recommend anyone just go out and watch this film because I think that everyone's response to it will be so deeply personal that it will shock, confuse, and distort reality for some viewers. And so, on the other hand, one of the most you know lovingly, creatively crafted movies of 2004 just might not be appropriate for you. And um, I would not hold it against you if you didn't want to see this film. 2004 or 2014. Thank you. 2014. Same thing. <laughs> so it's really the same. It's just 10 years difference. No big deal. Yeah. But Viz. I mean, you know, so enjoy. Oh. Viz. Bottom line, still a better love story than Twilight. <laughs> that's great. <laughs> uh, but, uh, that's not, that's not saying you wouldn't watch Twilight. Wait, what? <laughs> I think that's exactly what he's saying, Joe. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> All right. um, okay, so I, I, I basically agree with most of everything that Joe just said because I, I would kind of also say this movie, superb direction, it's a captivating story, uh, incredible cinematography, uh, outstanding acting performances overall. Um, I was hooked. I was on the edge of my seat. But there's the caveat that for a movie that I like so much – I would still not necessarily recommend it to everybody. Um, I think we asked, we answered Joe's question on our podcast. Like, should I take my 17 year old sister? Oh, yeah, to see it? yeah. 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 Um, you know, and we kind of said, well, mm. uh, th- <laughs> this is one of the, to, to paraphrase our answer, I, I would say that we said, this is one of the movies where when it says it's recommended for mature audiences, that it's truly recommended for mature audiences. Carefully, carefully consider whether this is something that you should see because of the themes and the the intensity of it. Um, and I would put it along the lines of, hey, can you handle this movie? Well, did Silence of the Lambs really mess with your head? If it did too much, then this movie is probably too much for you. If that's your if that's your bag, then you'll probably enjoy this movie and and uh, enjoy it for all of its cinematic achievements. So with that, I, I also gave this movie four and a half stars. Um, it wasn't the first movie that I've given four and a half stars to this year, but it is of the four and a half star movies that I've rated this year. This has probably been the best movie that I've seen to date this year. Um, so I, I don't expect it to be the best film. I will be very disappointed. If this is the best film I've seen um, come December 31st. Uh, but right now it's from top to bottom, the best film that I've seen. Um, I can't recommend to everybody. (laughs) Yeah, I I would, I would have to say I would be extraordinarily uncomfortable taking, uh, my, any of my sisters of any age to see this film. (laughs) No. What did they say? Oh gosh. Uh, I think it was Jr. Uh, he said, 
the the best person that you can take to see this is if you have a sister who's getting ready to marry a guy that you don't like. Take her, take her to see this movie. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> wow. Yeah, I, I'll also say this about the film. It, it made me question, what does it take to get an NC-17 rating? It really – I mean maybe I'm, maybe I'm compl- extremely naive. I've never seen an NC-17 film, and I have no intention of doing so. But it made me question, man, what does it take to get an NC-17? Do you think this was on the border? Was it flirting with it? Well, if you uh, if you watch the film, what is it called? Like this film's not yet rated. You realize that all you really have to do is have a scene uh, of any kind of sexual insinuation that has uh, homosexual tones to it. That's really all you need because interesting. They, they really kind of dole out these ratings fairly arbitrarily. Yeah. Oh, uh, for sure. Yeah. And I know you. I don't think you ever did see The Wolf of Wall Street, which is way worse than this film. Yeah. Um, as far as as far as graphic. And it didn't have things. an NC seventeen, did it? And it did, but then he he recut it and got okay. it to an R. But it the R was still pretty pretty rough. But the the thing about that film and this film, I would say, is that when you have like sexual scenes and things like that, that typically people like red flag for NC seventeen or you know what what made this R NC seventeen. Both these films have those elements in it, but neither of them. I think really linger on those elements. They don't. And, and, and the thing about and this, so, this film, that's different for me. Yeah. Like the thing about this film too, is like, you know, you know what's going on and you see what's going on, but it's not like graphic in the sex scenes. You, you know what I'm saying? There, there's not like a six minute, like slow sex scene. Yes. That's obviously there to pander to be a sex scene. Like there, like I said, there is nudity, there is violence. Most of it's quick. Most of it's fairly functional, um, to the story. And it kind of goes through it as a thing that happened, not as a thing that the movie stops to show you, which right. lots of lots of movies today revel in. And, you know, I don't necessarily approve of, um, but and, and don't get me wrong. I'm not saying I approve of this. I think there are better oh, yeah, ways I, to tell the story. I think we all know you don't. So. Yeah. So I'm just making sure people still understand that. Uh, all right. So my bottom line is I can't recommend this film, even though I enjoyed it and I liked it a lot. Um, based on everything that we've talked about, uh, I, I, I just, I would get in trouble for recommending this film with a lot of people. <laughs> uh, but that said, if you have the stomach for it, it is a fantastic film in a lot of ways. Um, if you feel like it's going to disturb you, don't go see it because it will disturb you. <laughs> uh, and if you don't want to be disturbed, uh, but it does, like you mentioned, uh, it, it does ask some fantastic questions or raise some fantastic questions, uh, in regards to media portrayal. Um, and, and even, even in regards to marriage, I don't agree with the perspective that, uh, Jillian, uh, is presenting here. As you, as you mentioned, it's not really David Fincher, I suppose, but the cynical outlook on marriage, uh, I I don't agree with it at all. It's, it's, uh, you know, as a Christian, I feel like it's an an anti-biblical way to look at marriage, but it does make you ask questions and, and, and it gives you a conversation piece. And that's a good thing. I I know that's a big thing for you, Fizz, on, on real world Mm -hmm. theology. So I know you can appreciate that perspective as well. Um, so, so all that said, I do give the film four stars and I've, I've really been mulling over the star rating. I was, I've, I've flirted with two, I've flirted with two and a half, three, you know, I've been all over the map on this thing, but I've, I've just had to have time to process this thing. And, and ultimately I, I did enjoy this film. I don't intend to ever see it again, probably. <laughs> um, but, uh, I still, I, I'm, I'm going to give it four stars purely for its, its filmmaking craft. I mean, uh, David Fincher is on top of his game here. He's a fantastic storyteller. Um, and, uh, yeah, that's, that's what I give the film four stars. Woo. 
Uh, it should be noted, IMDb user rating is 8.5 out of 10. Rotten Tomatoes, uh, 88% on the tomato meter, 90% from audiences. Uh, so this film is, and, and as we mentioned, it's making a lot of money too. I mean, for the type of film it is, and a super R-rated film like this doesn't always make a lot of good money. Mm-hmm. It's at 279.4 million, so that's uh, that's pretty good for a film rated R, and and deservedly so. Yeah, I would uh, say it, it made a little bit of money. Like it had a it had a strong opening weekend, and then it basically yeah. just had a couple strong follow up weekends. Nothing like mind blowingly awesome. No, but it's just kind of stuck around. Well, you so. might have noticed when I was reading the the stats uh, when we got started in the review. Mm-hmm. Like I, I was, I had to stop thirty seven point five million opening weekend. Really, for a, a, a film like this, that, that that's pretty pretty good actually. Yeah, especially in October. Yeah, in October, rated R. You know, very much so. It's, it, that's a really good figure for a film like this. It's pretty mm-hmm. pretty interesting. So maybe maybe everybody's interested to see what kind of an actor you know Batfleck really is before <laughs> before. He... <laughs> All right. So next week we're going to be talking about Interstellar, and uh, as far as we know, Fizz, you'll be on the podcast again for that. Uh, entirely. Maybe? I would say definitely maybe. Definitely maybe. All right. And we're supposed to also get Chad back on the show for that one. He's interested in, in talking about Interstellar. So that'll be a lot of fun. We'll get uh, one of the uh, former permanent co-hosts back to talk uh, about it, uh, about Interstellar with us as well. In the meantime, between now and next week, uh, people, they can't get enough of us, guys. They can't get enough. They want to know more. Where, Fizz, might they find you on the World Wide Web? Well, you can't get enough? Well, I'm not surprised. <laughs> uh, you can find more of my work over at realworldtheology.com. That's R-E-E-L, worldtheology.com. We just talk about the narratives that are shaping our culture. I mean, like we talked about with Fast and Furious, like we're talking about with this one. People are going to see these movies, and whether they like it or not, their their worldviews are being shaped. So we just kind of talk about some of the themes, the things that these movies are are instilling in people. Um, whether it's David Fincher or it's Jillian Flynn that uh, have these certain views of marriage. Uh, we do have an episode out on Gone Girl. Uh, it has a you know, slightly different spin to it. Oh, yeah. But uh, uh, it, like I said, if you like it, check out the podcast. We're on iTunes. We're on Stitcher. Or you can find us at the website. Oh, or you can follow me on Physification. Yeah, follow, follow, follow Fizz on Twitter. He, 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 he's a low-volume tweeter, so there's not a lot of cost there. That's right. Joe, where can people uh, keep up with you on the uh, worldwide here on a mission of mercy. You can catch me at the same old, same old places. I'm underscore Joe Darnell on Twitter. And my website is intentionalsensibility.com. That's not the same old, same old place. That's new. That's the same old, same old. Because you, if you went to the other email, uh, web addresses, it would just read it right to that site. You just keep changing things up. You got, always got to be new and fresh. I just got to keep buying more domain names and putting them all to the exact same place. That's all. You keep hovering business, man. Mm-hmm. This is... This is the first time I've heard of this site like this. It's the same site. It's just a new URL. It's joedarnell.com. Uh, all right. And if you want to follow me, you can do that on Twitter at TJ Draper Pro is where I'm at over there. Uh, I'm not a low volume tweeter, so beware, be warned. <laughs> um, and if you want to get show notes for this episode, uh, your, your, your podcatcher doesn't pull those in like, uh, like good podcatchers do, but you're using Apple's iTunes or something like that, then you can go to moviebyte.com slash MB podcast slash one, one, one that this is the 111th episode. That's where you'll find the show notes for this episode at. Uh, and that's a URL that you can also share with people if you want to send them this episode. And you can find a comment form there and leave us your remarks. Tell us how much you enjoyed the show. Interact with us there. Uh, we read all the comments, and uh, that's a good place to do that. 
Uh, as I said, we'll be reviewing Interstellar next week. Until then, have a great time at the cinema. Thanks, guys. Bye-bye. Good night.